0: From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America.
1: I hope if they look at my book and read my book, and I hope they will, I think it'll give them a a deeper appreciation for Dr. King. I think they will come to see how he was coping with uh, incredibly difficult uh, circumstances in the spring of 1968, and um, what courage he was showing in uh, trying to uh, confront those uh, uh, difficulties, and uh, and and at the same time his commitment to doing something about the. The scourge of poverty in America, I, I don't think that story is as well known as it should have been. And, and that's one theme in my book is, is, and I think you come to see poverty through Dr. King's eyes in a way that, that helps you understand why he believes that it was uh, so crucial for uh, America to address the issue of poverty far more effectively and uh, more and more comprehensively than it was doing then, and by the way, I don't think it's done it all that much since then.
0: Joseph Rosenblum, author of Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours, published by Beacon Press. When King boarded Eastern Airline Flight 381 from Atlanta to Memphis on the morning of April 3rd, 1968, he was heavy laden. His reputation as a credible, nonviolent leader of the civil rights movement was on the line. Just when he was launching the Poor People's Campaign, a pro-strike march under his leadership six days earlier had ended badly. Windows were broken, looting took place, and one teenager was killed. Also, many of King's aides thought going back to Memphis was a bad idea. To make matters worse, for more than a year, he was speaking out against the Vietnam War, and his critics claim, in doing so, he was no true patriot. I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Redemption martin luther King jr's last thirty one hours with author Joseph Rosenblum in Black America
1: several of Dr. King's aides were very much opposed to him going to Memphis, and that was one of the reasons is they thought that it would distract him from the poor People's campaign I mean, at a critical stage. The Poor mm-hmm. People's campaign was starting later in April. Andrew Young was maybe the most uh, vehemently um, opposed to the idea, and uh, he had another reason he he was afraid that if uh, Dr. King went to Memphis for one speech, which was the uh, Dr. King's intention, he said, oh, I'll just go down there and I'll talk once, and uh, that'll be it. But uh, Andrew Young said, well, you know, it's very likely you'll give one speech and then you'll feel like you're committed and you'll have to go back and give a second, and a second will leave to a third, and we're going to get bogged down there indefinitely. And he said, um, uh, it'll be the equivalent of uh, mission creep, which happens uh, to the military in, in wars. Uh, in the early stage of an intervention in war. He said, we, do, we can't afford mission creep either. We, we need to be more strategic about the movement.
0: In the 50 years since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1968, little has been written regarding the last two days of his life. Joseph Rosenblum, a young intern at the Commercial Appeal newspaper in Memphis in 1968, promised one day to correct that oversight. In his book, Redemption... Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours, Rosenblum reveals how a lapse in police security by the Memphis Police Department left King vulnerable. Police Director Frank Holliman received numerous calls that something could happen to King while in Memphis and how the pressure of recruiting volunteers and raising funds for the Poor People's Campaign left King emotionally and physically exhausted. Also, it reveals what James L. Ray, King's assassin, was doing in Memphis during the same time in how a series of remarkable breaks enabled Ray to construct a sniper's nest in the bathroom of the New Rebel Motel and shoot King. In Black America recently spoke with Joseph Rosenblum.
1: Well, I was born in um, New York City, but uh, my father was then in the Army, so my mother was there uh, briefly with her parents. But then when I was just a baby, uh, moved to uh, Jackson, Tennessee, and that's where I grew up. Jackson, Tennessee, which is in the middle of West Tennessee, about 80 miles northeast of Memphis.
0: Yeah, you did mention that in the book. What was that initial interest for journalism? I just always liked it. I
1: started writing uh, for my junior high school paper, if you can believe that, and uh, I continued doing it through school, and it's something I enjoyed doing, and I stuck with it.
0: Why was it important for you to write this particular a chapter regarding Martin Luther King, Jr.? Well,
1: we had started this. uh, First, I heard him speak um, when I was a student at uh, Stanford University. That was in 1967. And it made an impression on me, quite a good impression. And uh, then, in the summer of 1968, I was an intern for the Memphis Daily, the Commercial Appeal. And um, it was right after, uh, a couple of months after uh, King was assassinated in uh, in Memphis. And uh, I heard from some of the other reporters stories about uh, what happened in Memphis when uh, Dr. King was there and uh, more about his the circumstances of his assassination and I thought that I would be great. I was intrigued by those stories and I thought it would be great to come back sometime and, uh, and revisit the story.
0: In your opinion, why was it important for you to, to write this book but also over the years, writers have been reluctant to Include the last 31 hours of his life. It was important to me
1: to do it because I think you could learn a lot about him during those uh, last 31 hours, which is the narrative structure of the book. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there were parts of the story that were untold or not very well told. If you look at um, the most highly regarded biographies of a, of a king, uh, they are enormous, sprawling books. They run hundreds of pages. Right. And uh, and yet, when you get to the part about Memphis, I had the sense that they skimmed the surface. And as I got deeper and deeper into the subject, I realized that there were elements of the story that uh, had been overlooked. And I thought that a fuller story concentrating on those last 31 hours um, would actually uh, be an important story to tell.
0: That last 31 hours, there was a lot going on with, with Dr. King and I guess that's why you named the title of the book Redemption. What are the three uh, redemptive things that Dr. King was dealing with? There were um, three things. The first, um, he
1: was trying to redeem his reputation Mm -hmm. as uh, a nonviolent leader. He had been uh, in Memphis just six days before the start of those 31 hours, and he was there to uh, lead a march in support of the, Sanitation workers who were on strike, and the march had turned into a riot very quickly and he was being condemned widely um, by uh, politicians and in some newspaper editorials and he um He felt first that he was um very upset that the uh, the riot had occurred, and second, he felt that he had to do something to restore his credibility as a leader of a nonviolent movement. uh, That was critical to uh, to what he he believed and also to his his, uh, success um, in uh, leading the civil rights movement. The second thing is uh, he he then was embarked on um, the Poor People's Campaign, and he was talking a lot about a promise that he believed the federal government had made to all Americans to keep them free of living uh, in poverty. So the second meaning of... Redemption is he was trying to redeem the promise of America, as he saw it, and that promise being uh, that uh, no one would have to live in poverty. And there's a third meaning, and that is he, uh, it, it has a Christian connotation. Um, uh, j- just as, uh, as you know, uh, Jesus um, uh, sacrificed himself, according to uh, the biblical belief, sacrificed himself to uh, save or redeem all humanity of uh, their sin. And um, applying that notion to his, to himself, and King thought that would think of himself as um, be, as sacrificing himself even to the point of death to um, to serve the noble cause of of racial and economic justice, and he thought that that sacrifice would uh, would have de- redemptive value for him. So there's that those three meanings of redemption.
0: I found it interesting when you write in the book that King really didn't want to be a everyday day in and day out minister. He wanted to be a theologian, a scholar.
1: That's right. He got his Ph.D. in systematic theology from Boston University just before he moved to Montgomery, Alabama, to accept the pulpit at the Evan at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Right, and. Um, what he had in mind then, according to what several people told me, is um, he really wasn't thinking in those days about dedicating himself to, the, to civil rights activism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What he imagined is, yeah, he would be a preacher for a while, and, uh, but then he, he also thought at some point he would like to be a theologian, maybe in some uh, ivory tower institution uh, at a university or some important theological center. And that's really what he in- expected he'd do with his life.
0: Tell us about 1968, Memphis, Tennessee.
1: Well, Memphis in 1968 was uh, still very racially divided. It was emerging from the Jim Crow er- era of uh, segregation. A lot of the uh, public facilities were desegregated. But nonetheless, there was still this sharp division between the whites and, and, and uh, African Americans, really two different classes. So the, the population then was about 600,000, 60% white, 40% black. And the black population really uh, lived in uh, much uh, less advantageous circumstances than the whites. The whites, in effect, were a, a sort of a master class still, and the African Americans were still a subservient class. I mean, that's broadly speaking. The whites thought of Memphis as a very livable city, like the slogan was, the city of good abode, the city of... Well tended yards and and, uh, well attended churches. For blacks, it was a city that was still rife with uh, racial discrimination. They uh, economically fared uh, less well. Um, The income was uh, just a fraction of what, uh, average income was just a fraction of uh, what it was for whites. And uh, one symbol of that was the downtown's uh, statue of uh, Nathan. Bedford Forrest, the cavalry general, and um, had been a slave trader in Memphis mm-hmm. uh, after the Civil War, and uh, he uh, he actually was the founder and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, there was this downtown statue that um, really kind of celebrated Nathan Bethard, Bedford Bedford Forrest, uh, and that was just a symbol of the uh, of the of the uh, still, you might say, the persistence of uh, of the, um, of the of the of the deep South attitude that had, that had prevailed for so long after the Civil War, so uh, there was a sense among blacks that uh, Memphis um, really was a city divided into in, in between uh, blacks and whites. In that in that sense,
0: when Martin and SCLC came to Memphis for the first time, they weren't organizers of the march. They were asked to assist, give their assistance in the march. No, they
1: weren't. uh, They were not. The first first Dr. King came to speak at a rally for the sanitation workers. And then when he came back um, 10 days later, the march was organized locally Mm -hmm. by the people who were supporting the, uh, uh, the sanitation workers' strike. That's right.
0: And that particular march turned into violence. The invaders disrupted the march, and that's when looting took place. A young African-American uh, teenager was killed, so to say he was looting, and, and, and things really got out of hand. They did get
1: out of hand. It it wasn't ever clearly established that the invaders were responsible for the violence. What was clearly established is that a small number of youths broke away from the march and uh, started uh, breaking windows and looting stores, and uh, the police investigated and. There were no charges brought against the invaders, and they weren't able to clearly determine what the what role the invaders had in the riot, if any.
0: Now, when SCLC and, and Dr. King came to Memphis, a lot of his aides were against that because they were planning for the Poor People's Campaign, and that was being taken away from their, their planning schedule. But Dr. King thought that the Poor people Campaign would have been assisted if they could have a peaceful march again uh, in Memphis.
1: That's right. Several of Dr. King's aides were very much opposed to him going to Memphis, and that was one of the reasons is they thought that it would distract him from the Poor People's Campaign I mean, at a critical stage. The Poor mm-hmm. People's Campaign was starting later in April. Andrew Young was maybe the most uh, vehemently um opposed to the idea, and uh, he had another reason. He, he was afraid that if uh, Dr. King went to Memphis for one speech, which was the, uh, Dr. King's intention, he said, oh, I'll just go down there and I'll talk once, and uh, that'll be it. But uh, Andrew Young said, well, you know, it's very likely you'll give one speech and then you'll feel like you're committed and you'll have to go back and give a second, and a second will lead to a third, and we're going to get bogged down there indefinitely. And he said, um, uh, it'll be the equivalent of uh, mission creep which happens uh, to the military in, in wars, uh, in the early stage of an uh, intervention in a war, he said, we, did, we can't afford mission creep either. We, we need to be more strategic about
0: the movement. You spoke with a number of Dr. King aides and allies. Uh, what was it like going back down memory lane? That's a very good question.
1: Um, it was moving. Uh, I felt as though I had a, sort of a front row seat on history, uh, albeit, Decades later, mm-hmm. and uh, to hear their stories and to see the the emotion that they still felt that much longer was um, was really quite um, uh, it was it was really quite had quite an effect on me and uh, and some of the stories were even though it had been that many years were were still were still very gripping and and, and uh, dramatic and it, it just shows what an effect. It just shows what an impact that experience must have had on those people.
0: How was it that the Black Power movement was playing heavy on Dr. King's mind during that period?
1: Well, the um, Black Power advocates were, uh, in a way, they were defying the whole uh, approach of Dr. King. They were national uh, nationalists. They were a Black nationalist, meaning that they wanted to be apart from the white the the the, the uh, white culture and the white um, the white mainstream they wanted to be separate in that sense and Dr. King was very much an integrationist he was trying to bring all people together not separate them the second is they weren't clearly disavowing violence i mean it was more about rhetoric than it was about acts for the black power folks uh they um uh, they would say uh, well we have to defend ourselves and uh, if anyone attacks us we're going to Attack them back, and 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 they were using some fiery uh, language like that. So, Dr. King didn't approve of them, and they didn't approve of him. They thought that his approach to civil rights was ineffective; that it wasn't aggressive enough. So, this is a, in a sense, this is a a um, uh, this is another message that is emerging from the civil rights community, and um and it and it's uh, and, and it's Diverting, diverging from what Dr. King was saying, and so even though he sympathized with their grievances, he didn't approve of a lot of a lot of their manner and their and, and their, their their words. So uh, there was a kind of a wedge, you might say, between the two groups, between Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the uh, Black Power movement.
0: What was the strike attempting to achieve? The uh, strike was to achieve um,
1: primarily four things. First, better wages. Second, better working conditions and benefits. Third, union recognition. By then, the sanitation workers had formed a union. And fourth, they wanted something called a dues checkoff. You may be familiar with that. It just means that the city would transfer the union dues directly to the union's treasury so that they would be so that that way the, uh, the dues would reach the union directly, and it wouldn't have to, the union wouldn't have to collect them from the individual members. Those were the four uh, the four objectives of the strike.
0: I found it interesting when you were writing about Joe Warren. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So he was uh, he emerged as one of the uh, most uh, significant uh, leaders of the strike, and uh, I interviewed him at length and found him a, com- a very uh, interesting guy. Um, there's lots to say about him, but just in short he um, he came from a, a very modest circumstances uh, fought in uh, uh, in World War two uh, was awarded uh, medals for his bravery went back to Memphis and after the war discovered that um, there really wasn't much for, uh, work for him except uh, an employee except as employment of the uh, Department of Public Works collecting trash but he soon felt that there were these issues that were um, that were worth fighting for. And uh, he helped to organize the union, and then he helped to lead, lead the strike.
0: I found it interesting when you started the book with Dr. King and his aides leaving Atlanta to, to go to Memphis, and it kind of framed Dr. King's mindset about his imminent death. What happened there,
1: John, is the airplane, even when it was in Atlanta before it left, was uh, the target of a bomb threat that was specifically uh, directed at uh, Dr. King. The plane uh, was delayed. They uh, brought, um, they evacuated the uh, passengers. Brought dogs in. Turned out to be a false alarm. But you have to assume that that was weighing on him as he flew to Memphis, and really, for the, at least the rest of the day, this because uh, he was often the target of bomb threats. But I think it was rare for planes to actually be delayed and passengers evacuated in that way. So that, I'm sure, must have uh, affected his mind um, as he uh, for that first day in Memphis.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Joseph Rosenblum, award-winning journalist and author of Redemption, Martin Luther King, Jr.'s last 31 hours. Also in the book, you had an opportunity to talk and give some private moments that Dr. King had with his friends and his associates? I did.
1: Uh, I'm not entirely sure what you, uh, if you have something particularly. Well, not, the,
0: uh, the moments that, back and forth before they actually went to um, the Mason temple with, with, with Reverend Jackson.
1: Okay, right. Wanting to speak. And right.
0: then okay. the other being playful prior to the assassination in, in the courtyard down below.
1: Right. What happened that uh, early evening of uh, that uh, Wednesday, April the third? Dr. King was supposed to address to yet another rally um, in support of the of the sanitation workers' strike, but it was a uh, a stormy night in Memphis. Uh, there was uh, there was a thunderstorm coming through town. There was uh, even tor- there were even tornado warnings, and uh, Dr. King wasn't feeling very well. He um, he had a sore throat. Um, he was exhausted. He had been on the road for weeks at a time. And he also suffered from insomnia, so he was sleep-deprived. And he, he really didn't feel very well. So he decided that he didn't want to talk at the church that night. The rally was going to be held at a church called Mason Temple. And so he asked if... Um, Ralph Abernathy would go in his place. Well, Jesse Jackson was there, and Jesse said, Well, I'll go. I'll be happy to talk for you. And uh, Dr. King said, No, you know, I I think I I don't want you to talk. I think I'd rather have uh, Ralph Abernathy talk. Ralph Abernathy, of course, being his his, uh, close friend and uh, the second-in-command of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Jesse Jackson was just a a young guy then and had just fairly recently joined the SCLC, and also, he was extremely ambitious. And uh, I, as uh, I was, I, according to some accounts, uh, uh, Dr. King would, was a bit wary of uh, of uh, Jackson's uh, ext- extreme ambition, even at that age. So he asked um, he asked uh, Ralph Abernathy to go, and Ralph Abernathy he did go in his place. But uh, then eventually, Abernathy called and said that they, it was obvious the crowd didn't want him to speak; they wanted. Dr. King to speak, so then Dr. King yeah. readily agreed, and he did go to Mason Temple and deliver the speech.
0: You talk about James Earl Ray in the book, and it seems like he was an accident waiting to happen, considering that most of his family members had criminal records.
1: Yes. So his family was rife with c- crime, and um, he grew up in a very dysfunctional family. It's uh, hard to imagine a worse uh, worse conditions than he yeah. Uh, than he had and um he uh was kind of kind of as a kid he was uh persecuted in school he dropped out of school in the ninth grade and so he had a, a lot going against him and he did, then he he became a he tried a few jobs and didn't go well he was in the army and he essentially kicked out of the army so he was kind of he was essentially a loser long wrapped uh sheet and um so, yeah, that's right. His uh, beginnings uh, certainly did not uh, foreshadow a, uh, a particularly uh, a, a particularly bright future for him.
0: I also found it interesting that the prior police chief in the 50s when King used to visit Memphis uh, lended security for Dr. King, but the police chief in 68 wasn't that concerned about his protection, only the surveillance of him when he was in the city.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, the, the The predecessor, the the guy who was uh, the police director in sixty eight, is a guy named Frank Holloman.
0: right.
1: His predecessor, is a guy named Claude Armour, the police uh, chief, and uh, Doctor King was in Memphis in nineteen sixty six. Briefly, he was. That was when he went to Mississippi to support James Meredith's march against fear. Mm-hmm. And during that visit in nineteen sixty six, Claude Armour said, "Well, we're going to protect uh, Doctor King. We." Uh, I, if anything happens to Dr. King well he's here he told his security detail that he assigned to protect him. then I'm then you're going to be handing in your badge that's how determined he was to protect Dr. King and they he did have a a large security detail of African American officers who protected him there's something like uh, I think there was like 8 of them or something like that mm-hmm. and uh by contrast when Dr. King came to Memphis in 1968. On his first two visits, there was no police protection for him. And uh, then on his last visit, uh, on April the third and fourth, there was police protection only for about eight hours.
0: Eight hours, right?
1: On the third, and then it was discontinued. So there was no po- protection for him on the fourth.
0: think five the reason right?
1: That's right. And I think the reason was they, it was indifference. Uh, the uh, Holloman and the other uh, top uh, people in the police department. They just didn't care that much about King's safety. They figured, well, he could fend for himself, and uh, and, uh, and they and they didn't ha- assign a high priority to his security.
0: Yeah, sorry to say that Holloman was from the J. Edgar Hoover School of, I guess, policing.
1: Well, he had uh, he had been a top official at the FBI,
0: right?
1: And um, Hoover believed, um, first of all, you may be familiar with the whole
0: smear campaign, that, exactly
1: that the FBI had. Had undertaken against Dr. King for years, and also Hoover very much believed in covert um, in covert, uh, in, in covert uh, uh, monitoring of of, uh, of people uh, such as Dr. King surveillance, and um, Holloman adopted that approach to uh, law enforcement as well. And he, when he arrived in Memphis, he he established a, a, a department for that, and that's the way he handled the uh, visit of Dr. King. There were two African-American officers who were assigned to surveillance and then as I described a moment ago not much emphasis on security.
0: Whatever happened to the injunction? The injunction
1: was eventually lifted but the judge who had initially issued the injunction imposed some restrictions. Was that Judge that were- Brown? No that was Judge yeah. Bailey Brown, okay. the US District Court judge in Memphis
0: Joseph Rosenblum, author of Redemption, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Last 31 Hours, published by Beacon Press. We will conclude our conversation on next week's program. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.